Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the 2019-2020 Faith and Life Lecture Series. As it continues, uh, we're delighted you are all here. Thank you for coming out on a somewhat cold night. Our speaker's from somewhere other than Minnesota, and she was just commenting that she still hasn't warmed up from um, coming in from the outdoors. Anyway, glad you are here tonight. I always do like to um, ask at the outset, by the way, I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip Deacon, which presents these events. Uh, I always like to ask how many people have never been to a Faith in Life event in the past? So maybe about a third about a of you. So a special welcome to each of you. We're really glad you're here. Um, this is the 17th season of these events. Those of you who are familiar with them uh, will know that five times a year we have the great privilege of welcoming uh, people from around the country and indeed from around the world who are authors and um, journalists. We've had lawyers, we've had doctors, we've had executives, we've had uh, business leaders and nonprofit leaders come and discuss their own sense of how faith is connected to whatever, whatever it is that they do. Uh, we have had a very few, um, a couple, three professional athletes that I can remember. I don't know if we've ever had an outdoor adventurer, though, uh, which is what we're thrilled to present for you tonight. Uh, our speaker tonight is an adventurer. She's a hiker. She was the National Geographic Person of the Year, one of the National Geographic People of the Year in 2012. Is that right? You're shrugging. I assume you know. Um, <clears throat> Before children. Wait, okay. <laughs> Um, and you can read more about her in the program. I always, if you've been to these in the past, I always do, though, like to say at least one or two things that are not uh, in a formal biography about our speakers. So there are two things I will lift up for you tonight that you likely do not know about our speaker. Um, the first is that she will be appearing in a new IMAX movie that's coming out actually in a couple of weeks um, called Into America's Wild. So, oh, Trisha is, is familiar with that movie. Uh, so look for that, and, and interesting, uh, as part of that movie, I guess Morgan Freeman is the narrator, and at one point he speaks her name. So she feels like she's had the voice of God say her name. That's one thing. The other thing is, and she will likely discuss this, and if you're familiar with her book, Becoming Odissa, you will know that uh, through hikers have trail names. Odissa is her trail name. Uh, she and her husband, Brew, have uh, two young children, a seven-year-old uh, daughter and a three-year-old son, each of whom have their own trail names already. So the seven-year-old daughter's trail name is Hold Me, uh, and the three-year-old son's is Get Down. <laughs> We are delighted to welcome tonight Jennifer Farr Davis. Will you join me in welcoming her? Hey, y'all. Thanks for coming out tonight. I am really excited to be here. I am, in fact, still cold. <laughs> but hopefully I'll, I'll warm up throughout the evening. I do feel very adventurous coming to Minnesota in February. In my home at North Carolina, I'm very good at dealing with heat and humidity, but this is its own form of adventure coming up and seeing everything white and beautiful and very frozen. Um, so as you heard in the introduction, I love 
to hike. Um, at this point, I've covered over 14,000 miles of long distance trails and on six different continents. I've also set foot on a trail in all 50 states, and I accomplished that with my daughter, which was part of the reason she got the name Hold Me. Um, my favorite trail is the Appalachian Trail, which I have hiked three separate times. The last time I hiked it, which was back in 2011, I actually set the record for men and women as the fastest person to complete the trail. So I finished the 2,190-mile footpath in 46 days, which is an average of 47 miles per day. That gets some attention, but it was not my hardest adventure. I've also backpacked over 700 miles in my second and third trimesters of pregnancy, and I walked 1,200 miles across the state of North Carolina while I was still nursing my son as an infant. Those were harder. But tonight, we're not gonna hear much about those adventures. So you're welcome to ask about them in Q&A. But tonight, I actually wanna bring you back to where all this began. Because honestly, I didn't grow up hiking or backpacking. Like most kids, I was just really busy with school and sports and extracurriculars. And then I graduated college and I was 21. And, and truthfully, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do with my life. But I heard about the Appalachian Trail and I just felt like it was something I was supposed to do. So I remember I went to my mother and uh, I told her that I felt called to hike the Appalachian Trail. And she told me that I needed to prayerfully reconsider my calling. <laughs> and I, I mean, I did. I, I was praying about this. And, um, you know, I don't know when we talk about a spiritual calling, it means different things to different people. Just, a few weeks ago, I heard someone say that they felt called to go to Starbucks, and I was like, no, that was just a caffeine headache. Like that, I don't think that was a real calling, but here's what I can tell you. When I thought about other options, everything else felt wrong. And so eventually, uh, I went home, and I gathered my brother's old Boy Scout gear, and then when the time came to start, it was mid-March, I went by myself to Georgia with the goal of walking through 14 states up to Maine. And when you're hiking the Appalachian Trail and you have no thoughts of a record, for most people it takes them an average of five or six months. And that was the time I had planned for and allotted for. And I got out there and I had been a college athlete, I played tennis, so in my brain, I thought that hiking was technically just walking, and it couldn't be that challenging. And then I realized that backpacking was the most difficult thing I had ever done. It was relentless, right? Every sports event I had done up until that point had taken place maybe a few hours, maybe in a weekend if it's a tournament, but it always ended the same way. It ended with a shower, first of all. <laughs> A shower, a warm meal, a soft bed. Most of the time there was someone along the way encouraging me 
telling me I was doing a good job, even if it was just my mom. And then I got out to the trail, and it was just discomfort. You know, it was going up and down mountains all day, every day, in all types of weather, with everything I needed in a pack on my back. I very quickly had blisters on my feet and aching shoulders. And one of my first, first realizations out there is you never really know how much it rains. <laughs> until you live outside, right? Like, at least on the East Coast, it rained a lot. At some point, 12 of my first 14 days, it rained. But I will never forget the sense of pride I felt when I, first of all, finally made it out of Georgia, which has only got 77 miles of this 2,000 plus mile trail, but I was like, yes, made it out of Georgia, and then I hit the boundary for the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Has anyone here been to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park? A couple folks. And I figured, even though we we're far away, I was hopeful that there would be hands. And what I learned about the Great Smoky Mountain National Park is that it's actually the most visited national park in our country. Did you know that? I grew up in the southeast, and I didn't realize that until I got there. But then I heard this and thought, oh my gosh, I've never been here. There's got to be something incredible to see, especially if all these folks are coming. So what I hoped for was to get there and have incredible views. And now it's April, right? Already April. So I hoped I could see wildflowers. I kind of wanted to see wildlife, like, at a safe distance. <laughs> And instead, for four days while I hiked through the park, I never had a single view. Turns out mid-April was too early for wildflowers on those high mountain ridges. And the only animals I saw were a couple of squirrels and a couple of grouse. That when you stir up a grouse on a mountain ridge, it is terrifying, right? It sounds like a helicopter propeller going off. And that was it. It did not live up to my expectations. It turns out there's a reason those mountains are called smoky, right? <laughs> Foggy, cloudy, rainy, misty. And my last night in the park, the last thing I wanted to do was set up my cold, wet tent with my numb fingers. So I got to this other place where I could stop. And along the Appalachian Trail, you have options. You can tent, or about every seven or eight miles, they have these like rustic, three-sided wooden lean-tos. Not fancy, do not think glamping, right? These are usually filled with, with other hikers, they can be filled with mice, but at least they'll give you a roof in bad weather. So I got to the shelter, and I rolled out my foam pad and curled into my sleeping bag, and I fell asleep listening to the sound of rain fall on the shelter roof. Then the next morning, I woke up, and the first thought in my head was like, oh, yes, I don't hear rain. It must have stopped. But then I looked outside, and what do you think that I saw? Snow, right, snow. And now you're going to see how southern I really am, because I saw eight inches of snow outside, and I panicked. Like, I flipped out. I was like, this is not good. This is not OK. I had already eaten almost all the food in my backpack, because I was supposed to make it out of the park that day. So all I had left for provisions was half a jar of peanut butter and one package of Pop-Tarts. 
I was already wearing all of my hiking clothes and I was freezing. And the last thing I wanted was to have to get rescued out of the park in a snowstorm because then I thought, my mother is going to kill me, right? Like, if I make the news, this is not going to go well. So I was like, I got to get out of here. And immediately I start to pack, pack up. And I look down where I put my shoes the night before. The laces are covered in ice. There's no way to tie or untie them. So I stop my foot inside, throw on my pack, and then I start hiking down the trail. And one thing I love about the Appalachian Trail is relative to other paths, it's very, very well marked. The only problem is it's marked the entire 2,000 miles with one symbol, one marker. Yeah, and it's white, right? It is a two by six inch white rectangle. You can see an image of it up on the screen here. So those are usually very easy to spot until you're in a blizzard. And now I can't see the trail. I'm having a hard time finding blazes. I'm trying to use my maps and my guidebooks to go in the right direction. And most of the time I was in the forest and that was helpful because in the trees, you're somewhat protected from the wind and the sleet and the snow. But at one point, I left tree cover and I was on this high exposed ridge line and I felt the wind and the sleet and snow hitting my face. You guys know this. It burns, right? It hurts. And so instinctually, here's what I did. I, I ducked my head, I closed my left eye and I booked it as fast as I could to get inside the forest and when I made it there, I lifted my chin and something was wrong. I couldn't open my eye. It had frozen shut. Okay, seriously, how many of you have, have you had your eye frozen shut? I wanna know in Minnesota, right? Like everyone, like not that big deal. But for me, I didn't know this could happen and I throw off my mitten and I stand there and I pick icicles off of my eyelashes and I wipe frozen crust from the corners of my eye until I can once again lift my eyelid, regain my sight, and then keep hiking down the mountain. Now after a very long day, 18 miles, that was 18 trail miles, I have no idea how much ground I covered off trail during this day. But after 18 miles, 13 hours, I finally made it to the park boundary and there was a road and a hiker hostel and I was safe. But I will never forget what it felt like to hike through the Smokies in a blizzard with one eye frozen shut. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't a good feeling, I'm gonna tell you that. There was panic and frustration and I felt lost and going into this journey I always thought that one of the biggest mistakes I could make on the trail would be to get lost right something I, I didn't want to happen that was a mistake and at this point I now have accepted that getting lost is a natural part of any long journey I've gotten lost at this point a bunch. If you're out there, if you're in the woods for extended periods of time, you will make wrong turns. Getting lost is not the mistake, it's how you respond to it, right? 
And I think about this in all facets of life. I think about it parenting. I think about it professionally. I also think about it when it comes to my faith because there have been many times in my faith walk where I have felt lost or confused and I don't know where the trail is. But I love that I still have blazes. I still have guidebooks. I still have resources. In my faith, it's different. Maybe it's a close friend or a mentor. Maybe it's church. Maybe it's scripture. Maybe it's a good book. Maybe it's a sacrament. But I have resources to help me get back to the path that I want to be on. Another thing I realized through this experience was that busyness is not salvation. I always thought that hard work was the key, like the answer, right? If something's not working, work harder and it'll be okay. I think it's woven into like our American ethos. But here is the literal manifestation on that, on the trail, in the blizzard. I was giving 100% effort, all of my energy. And if I wasn't on the trail, then all that effort was taking me farther away from where I wanted to go and where I wanted to be. And so often in life, I think it's the busyness that makes us feel purposeful or makes us feel value. But so much of the time, the busyness is taking us farther away from where we actually want to be or from where we really need to go. It took six and a half weeks for me to make it up to Virginia. But finally now, I've gotten out of a lot of the cold weather and the storms. Now there were wildflowers along the trail And I was getting used to this whole backpacking thing. That was helpful, right? Learned how to treat my blisters, learned how to work my camp stove. And in Virginia, while I was getting comfortable with the backpacking and with my environment, one thing I really enjoyed is just immersing myself in the community aspect of the Appalachian Trail. And that's one thing, again, comparing this path to all the other trails that I've hiked, the community is so unique and such an important part of the Appalachian Trail experience and you never know who you're going to find out there. You never know who you're going to meet around the next turn and again that's one thing my mom like hated that idea of never knowing who you would meet but it became so exciting to me to on any given day not know who I would get to encounter. And one thing that's fun about the trails, there's so much um, diversity out there, all different ages, backgrounds, and beliefs. I mean, most people using the trail are out there for day hikes or a weekend trip or a picnic, and that's great. That's exactly what the trail was built for. It was never created to be hiked all at once. But then you meet the folks trying to do the whole thing, and anyone in here want to guess the youngest hiker to complete the entire trail? there have been three five-year-olds three five-year-olds to walk the entire trail with their families there have also been I don't know how to qualify this maybe it's just got an asterisk by it but there's been a two-year-old and a one-year-old who were carried the entire way by their parents and kid carriers 
Can you imagine that? Like the Appalachian Trail and diapers, right? That is a lot. That is a lot. And I made a friend in here earlier who said he was not a hiker, he was older. And I told him it wasn't too late, and I meant it wherever you are. There have been a couple 80-year-olds to hike the entire trail. There have been multiple legally blind individuals to do it with their seeing-eye dogs. And a few years ago, there was a woman with a prosthetic leg who made it the entire way. And I love that. But... Don't let their examples make you think that it's easy. It's not. And in general, only about 20 or 25% of the folks who start will make it all the way to the end. And although you see all different folks out there, there are two main age groups. And although hiking and backpacking the Appalachian Trail is very affordable, I will always consider it a luxury because it's difficult not impossible to take five or six months away from other commitments to go for a hike. And because that is so challenging, what are the two main age groups that you think are trying to do the entire trail? Yep, retirees and then, yep, gap year just before college, right after college. So what you get you get a lot of 60-year-olds, you get a lot of 20-year-olds. And it's awesome. <laughs> it really is awesome. Like, there is such an exchange of energy and wisdom. And I feel like I learned more in five months of hiking the Appalachian Trail than I did in four years at a university setting for many reasons. But one of the top reasons is I spent a lot of my time and a lot of my miles walking with folks in their 60s and in their 70s. And they had a lifetime's worth of experience and wisdom. And then on the trail, they had just time. And I had time. And so they would share their stories. And once, it's funny, one of my friends, I don't think he was Catholic, but one of my hiker friends compared the trail to a Catholic confessional. Because it is amazing, like, what people will share with you on the trail and, like, how quickly they open up to you on the trail. Um, but I have on numerous occasions heard folks' biggest regrets in life and what they're most proud of. And that is a gift, and it's an education in itself. And just for the record, 90% um, of the time when people share their biggest regret with me, it's been the same thing. And it's not, I wish I had done something different with my career. It's not, I wish I had hiked this trail 30 years earlier. It's almost always, I wish I had spent more time with my family. In fact, um, the last time I heard it, it was a year and a half ago, but I was backpacking this trail in Alabama and I met this 80-year-old out there who was the kindest guy, but he was telling me about how he had wished he had spent more time with his sons growing up, when they were growing up. And he quoted a Mark Twain quote that I've never looked up because the way he said it is how I always want to remember it. But he said, you can pretend to care, but you can't pretend to be there. And that was so powerful for me to hear, just even as a working mom of two young kids. It was very centering. 
But there was one time, so a lot of positive community aspects, but there was one time in Virginia where I was walking down the trail and I met this other hiker who was a young man around my age, just graduated from college. And so we walked and we talked and then we had this really interesting conversation. And then at the end of the day, I was ready. I wanted to go off on my own once again. So I tried all the normal party methods, which are like, it's been nice, you know, see you down the trail, yada, yada, but nothing seemed to work. And it became clear that this guy really wanted to hike with me. And he seemed like a nice enough fellow. So, you know, I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I didn't want to be rude. I decided I would just give him some hints or clues about how I felt. So I remember I turned to this other hiker and I said, gosh, you know what? I really like hiking by myself. Right? Right? And he turned to me and he goes, yeah, me too. <laughs> like, isn't this convenient? We can hike by ourselves together. And I was like, mm -mm, nope, that is not where I was going. And a little while later, I decided to try again. And this time I said something along the lines of, gee, I am so glad that I don't have a hiking partner. And then he turned to me, and what do you think he said? <laughs> me too. And he kept following me, and he kept following me for six days. <laughs> yeah. And just to be clear, uh, I never felt threatened. I never felt unsafe. Physically, I think I could have taken this guy. <laughs> but, but emotionally, like, it was parasitic, and I was frustrated, and I was fed up, and I thought I had tried everything because I went really fast, but he kept up. So then I pumped the brakes, was very slow, and all of a sudden, he became super patient. At one point, I mean, this might be TMI, but at one point, I told him it was my time of the month. It wasn't, and that I just needed some space. And he told me that he had a sister he understood and he wanted to be there for me, okay? Right. Right. Okay. So, so finally, after nearly a week of this, there was this brief break where he wasn't right behind me on the trail. And I thought to myself, like, this is it. This is my chance and I've got to escape. So what are you going to do if you're trying to escape from someone on the Appalachian Trail? Run and hide. That is what came into my mind in that moment. And so I sprint off trail downhill with my 35-pound pack on my back. And then I get on all fours and I army crawl underneath a rhododendron tree, which is like a big green shrub, right? So now here I am underneath a bush, belly down in the dirt, looking up at the trail and just praying that this guy is going to pass without seeing me. And then all of a sudden I realize this is the most pathetic I have ever felt in my entire life. Like, I'm under a shrub, like in the dirt, in the middle of the forest, trying to avoid the only guy within miles. And why? 
The thing was, I know, I am confident that if I had turned to him at any point and said, I don't want to hike with you anymore, he would have left me alone. But when I was 21, I didn't have the courage, I didn't have the communication skills, and I grew up in this southern culture, which feels a little Midwestern to me because it's all about being very nice, right? And not hurting people's feelings. I think the difference between southern and Midwestern is that y'all are genuinely nice. <laughs> and not like passive aggressively nice. Um, or behind your back nice. Um, but yeah, I was so focused on not hurting his feelings that I hadn't found a way to communicate my needs or to create the space that I needed. And although the rhododendron tree did work in a pinch, I like vowed to myself that I would stop hiding. Like I never wanted to feel that way again. You know, I didn't want to hide from hard conversations. I didn't want to hide from difficult people. I didn't want to hide from how I really felt. And another thing I didn't want to hide from was my faith. And it's interesting, like, I was pretty nervous going into the trail experience as a Christian because there's a lot of different belief systems out there. It's a pretty progressive environment. And I just didn't know how I would be viewed. And so a lot of times I was nervous to talk about my faith or my belief or my Christianity. And what I learned along the way is that to really witness and to feel comfortable in your own skin, it's important to just authentically be yourself and tell your story. Right? And I wasn't out there to tell people that I had all the right answers, because I don't. And I wasn't out there to tell other people what they should do. But my faith is really important to me. It is the most important thing in my life. And it has been for a long time. So if people ask me a question and faith is a part of that, I want to answer genuinely. And I also want to share my insecurities and my doubts and my struggles and my joys and my gratitude. I wanted my faith to be a part of who I was regardless of who I was around or what environment I was in. And what I loved about the trail, when I embraced that, when I stopped hiding from that, I created so many close friends with people who were completely different from me and they knew me for me. And they knew who I was. And that was so powerful. And I needed those friends, um, <laughs> you know, all along the journey, but especially around the halfway point. I'll never forget, like, the mix of emotions that came with getting halfway through this journey, because on one hand, you feel so proud and you feel so accomplished because you've hiked a thousand miles, a thousand miles. And then on the other hand, you're completely <laughs> demoralized, right? Because that 1,000 miles is the hardest thing you've ever done in your entire life, and you still have over 1,000 miles left to go. Yeah. 
And to add to that, uh, the halfway point is in Pennsylvania, more or less around Pennsylvania, which is a really beautiful state, just not the part that the trail goes through. <laughs> Pennsylvania, it does have its nice sections, but in general, in the hiking community on the East Coast, Pennsylvania is known for its rocks. It's like all the other states took all their rocks and just dumped them on Pennsylvania, so you're stepping on these sharp, jagged edges. And then what animal loves warm rocks? Snakes. snakes. Yeah, rocks and rattlesnakes. That was Pennsylvania, right? And so when I was there, I told myself, okay, just got to get out of the rocks, just got to keep going. But then I got up to New Jersey, and I had definitely the hardest day of the journey and one of the hardest days of my life. And uh, something really tragic happened. Um, and I was by myself at this point, but I woke up early one morning because I was camped at the base of Sunrise Mountain. And I figured it had to be called Sunrise Mountain for a reason. So I decided I would hike up to the summit where I could watch the sun come up. And on top of this mountain, the trail went right over it, and there was an open-air picnic pavilion on the summit. And right before I got there, someone had driven up from a nearby town, walked up to the building, and then they took their life. So I was the first person to come across the scene, and I didn't know if it was a murder or a suicide or if someone was around who was going to hurt me. I just remember feeling like my stomach dropped out of my body. And it's amazing because I'm sure I just saw this scene for a second or two, but I will always remember in exact detail what it looked like. And I turned and I ran back down the trail to some point where I could stop and take out my cell phone, which this was 15 years ago, but I did have a cell phone my mom made me carry one of those brick Nokias, and it had horrible service, and the calls kept dropping. But finally, I talked to the police, and eventually they came out and met me on the trail. And when they got there, they sat down and asked me questions for 10 to 15 minutes, and then the cop flipped closed his notebook, and he turned to me, and he goes, all right, you can keep hiking now. So I was 21 years old, and I was 1,000 miles away from my family, and I had had my first face-to-face -face encounter with a violent death, and I was traumatized. And I was not processing choices or thinking through options, and the police officer told me I could keep hiking, so I stood up, and I put on my pack, and I started walking down the trail. And I'm so glad I did. And here's why. My emotions and my mind and my energy felt knotted and tangled and stuck and just tense, like all throughout my body. And what I learned that day is there is something very powerful about physical forward motion. I don't know that there's anything more hopeful than literally putting one step in front of the other. And as I walked, I could feel my body start to loosen. And here's the other thing. 
And, and one, one reason I really believe everyone needs the trail or someplace like the trail is because we need environments where it is okay to grieve. Because I've had tragedy now on trail and off and you know, when I'm at home, if something horrible happens, it seems like everyone right away is trying to fix it. And there are things that you cannot fix. And on the trail, my grief was so expansive, but the environment could hold it. There were no walls. I wasn't confined. I had the space and the time I needed to grieve and to sob, and to pray, and to process. And that is not easy, and it's not fun. Like, I am a champ at when bad things happen, just repressing it and bearing it down and not wanting to deal with it. But when you're out there, that's impossible. And the other thing that was so meaningful to me on the backside of this experience was the way that the trail community responded. Because I was out there, I was so proud. I mean, I was prideful, I was 21, but I was so proud just being this solo female hiker and feeling I was, like I was out there on my own, doing it by myself. But in that moment, it meant the world to me that people, they heard about what had happened and they rushed ahead, they waited, they hitchhiked back to find me. There were a handful of hikers who just did everything they could to get to me and then they said, whatever you need, we're here. I had a guy say, if you want me to walk with you every step till Maine, I will. But then, like, he had heard about that guy in Virginia, so <laughs> he was like, just to clarify, if you need space, like, you can have space. Um, so many of them, like, just opened up their food sacks to me, which sounds so simple. Except here's the thing. Hikers plan every snack, every meal. And they were saying, take whatever you want. There was a guy nearby me who, um, who he heard what had happened, and he told his mom. He told his mom what had happened, and she lived in Connecticut, and she drove two hours to come find me and check on me. She said, I know your mom's far away. I know you're from the South in North Carolina. I just wanted to be here and be your mom. I mean, it was incredible, the response, and it was so powerful. And I think the thing I realized from that experience is that the most meaningful response that I've experienced towards grief and hard times is, is not just one action, it's consistency. Consistency over time. And the way those other hikers were there for me, not just in the moment, but over miles and days and weeks, that made the difference. Now I'm going to tell you, <laughs> at this point... I am on this trail, and I'm thinking to myself, like, what trail am I hiking, right? Like, no one else I'm around has had the same experiences, and they were all like, what trail are you hiking? Like, I had been in the blizzard, I had been followed for six days, we didn't have time for this story, but at one point I was struck by lightning, and now, yeah, and now I came across a suicide, right? And so at this point, I'm like, I want I deserve 
a like red carpet, whatever the trails version of that is, and wild roses and great weather all the way to the end. That's what I need. That's what I should get. And so I kept going. <laughs> and I got up to New England, which I had never been there before. And I was so excited to be there because everyone had always said how idyllic it is. And it is, it's beautiful. But when I got there, it was June and it was muddy and it was hot and it was humid. And they have this insect, my least favorite insect, called a black fly. You guys have black flies. Oh, you guys know about black flies. Sure, I'm from the South. We have mosquitoes. They're this big. I don't care, right? You can hit them. Black flies are so small, and all of a sudden, I, I mean, they could get in my clothes and in my hair, and they don't travel. They don't travel independently. They travel in like swarms, right? Because here's, here's what I remember about this. First of all, I get up to Massachusetts, and I only carry all natural bug spray, right? And then I meet black flies. And as soon as I can, I get 100% DEET. <laughs> and I, every morning, I put it all the places they tell you not to put it. Like, I'm just bathing in DEET. And you can tell as it wears off, because you're, you're sweating, and it's wearing off or getting thinner. And the swarm, you can see it just get closer and closer and closer. This is what I remember. At one point, I came to a lake, and I just went in the lake, just up to here, to escape the black flies. And the truth is, at this point, I get up to Vermont, and I, in this moment, am just miserable. I am miserable. I am uncomfortable. I am hot. I am humid. This trail is not anything like I thought it would be or like I wanted it to be. And I got to a road crossing, and I didn't need any food or a resupply, but I also did not want to keep going. So I stuck out my thumb, got a ride to town. I was real good at that by that point. Stuck out my thumb, got the ride, got into this idyllic New England quaint village. The only problem with everything in New England being so idyllic and so quaint is that you can't afford it, right? Like, that was a problem. Like, hotel rooms were not cheap, and I could not afford anything. And so then I got another ride farther down the road where there was a motel, and I checked in, and it was like midday just after lunch. And so I took my shower, my shower, which that is one thing. The lasting gift of the trail may be that every time I like step in a shower and feel warm water coming out of the wall, like that is a miracle, right? It is. Like you're so grateful for showers. And so that was amazing. But then the shower was over and I was several miles from town and several miles from the trail and there was nothing to do. And so I sat on the bed and I turned on the TV and there were a couple channels, not a lot of options, but finally I settled on watching the MTV Music Awards on rerun, like it was just on repeat, not even live. But I watched about four hours of the MTV Music Awards and then I turned it off and I knew the next morning, as, sun, as soon as the sun came up, I was going straight back to the trail. 
right? And nothing exactly happened while I was watching this award show, but it was just like I was looking at mainstream culture like this in a way that I, I hadn't seen during my time on the trail. And, and here was just the comparison. Like, and by the way, I like a little rap and hip hop. I can dance to those things. Like I like the pop music. I'm not trying to be negative towards MTV. But here's what I saw. I saw things that were very produced. And I heard music that was synthetic. And I saw everything being extremely image-driven. And, you know, the, the need for applause and the need for, like, affirmation or awards or fame, like, it all felt so distant to what I had been experiencing in the woods. And what I had experienced for the four months up until that point, man, it had been hard. And it had been uncomfortable. And it had been slow. It wasn't fast like the music awards. And it had been quiet. It wasn't loud like the music awards. And I just kept thinking, I mean, the, the women on the screen and the men, too, like, they looked so beautiful in all the ways I had grown up to think that people were supposed to look beautiful. But then I thought about the trail. And on the trail, I was dirty, and I was filthy, and I was covered in scrapes and bug bites and bruises. But when you get to the top of a mountain, and you look around, and you realize that you are a part of nature, and you are a part of all of that beauty, you feel powerful, and you feel beautiful and you feel a little bit wild, a little bit wild. And that is something that I could never feel in a fancy dress on a stage. And the trail to me, what I realized, it was so countercultural, right? That was, that was the main thing that, comparing it to the MTV Music Awards, I said the trail is countercultural, but for me it was also Christian. It was Christian. It wasn't about consumption. It was about simplicity. And it wasn't about fame. It was about quality relationships with people who are very different from you. And it was also, as wonderful as the community is, it also was about some silence and some solitude, and I was terrified of silence and solitude when I started until I experienced it. It was so awkward the first day where I was like, ooh, it's happening, I'm bored, I'm bored, it's happening, a squirrel, a person, something, please. And then I realized it was awkward because it was the first time in my life where there was no pressure to react or respond or produce. And I could just be, and I could listen, and there was no one to talk to but God, and that was incredible. So when I got to the end of the trail, took just about five months, I was a completely different person, and I liked the woman at the end a whole lot better than the girl who had started. 
The only problem was I had also told my parents and my friends that I was going on this journey to, to figure out my life. And in a way I did, right? But in the way that they were expecting, where I had like three to four potential careers or job options to consider, I got off the trail and in my mind there were now a hundred different options. Because I realized I had abilities that I didn't know existed. I had been exposed to so many interesting people who did different things, and now there were just options. There were options beforehand that I had never considered. So I couldn't tell you what I wanted to do, but here's what I could tell you at the end of the trail. I wanted to do more. I wasn't sure what that looked like, but I wanted to do more with my life. And then pretty quickly I realized one thing I wanted to do more of. <laughs> and what do you think that was? Hike, right. So um, I did some more of that, and I want to take a minute and share with you some of my favorite pictures from different trails all over the world. And I'll try to tell you where they were taken. So we'll start the journey in Africa at Mount Kilimanjaro. Rise and fall like the tide, my hand moves with your chest. This is in Australia. That's dark, but there's a four-foot lizard on that tree. The storm rolls in, I see it in your eyes. Thunder strikes, but I will be a place for you to hide. This is in South America and Peru. That hurt. <laughs> on the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. Now we're on the Pacific Crest Trail. All the rest of the pictures are from Europe.
Okay, so hopefully you guys enjoyed those photos and maybe they make you want to go hiking. Um, tonight I want to wrap up by doing something that's a little special because I've never done it before. Um, usually when I go and talk, and very rarely, by the way, is it in a faith setting, but usually when I go different places, they like to hear about different stories. They want to hear about the record, right? That's the sexy story. Um, and how it relates to life and or business. And that's all good. But this first journey I've been reflecting a lot on, partly because um, this year marks 15 years from my first hike on the Appalachian Trail that I shared with you tonight. And the book that chronicles that journey is now 10 years old, and we're doing a re-release for it, which that, in a way, has been awkward, because of all the times in your life you want to revisit, 21 is not necessarily <laughs> what you want to go back and celebrate, right? But as we re-release the book um, in the 10-year anniversary edition, I also had the opportunity to write a new first chapter and reflect on what it's meant for me, this journey. And I'm not going to share the whole first chapter, we don't have time, but I do have a few paragraphs that I wanted to end with tonight. So this is new, it's not a book yet, it's printout paper, and you're some of the first folks to get to hear it. Hiking has been one of the biggest gifts and catalyst of change in my life. It taught me to approach the wide, well-trodden path with a critical eye and always look for alternative routes and options. It has challenged and redefined my ideas on the most significant themes of life, including beauty, success, education, equality, and faith. Contrary to the poetic waxing of romantics and transcendentalists, the lessons of nature are not always kind. And there is something strangely comforting in their harsh realities. Nature offers constant cycles of breakdown and rebuilding. And by observing the plants and animals, I have learned that balanced is seasonal as opposed to constant, and success is cyclical as opposed to vertical. My closest friends on the Appalachian Trail were completely different from me. I was surrounded by a variety of ages, backgrounds, and beliefs, and these relationships helped to break down stereotypes and judgments that were woven inside of me but never before recognized. And they also helped me strengthen some of my convictions and core beliefs. I was a Christian when I started the trail. I was a Christian when I finished the trail. The difference is that in the beginning, I thought I was going to be a voice in the wilderness. At the end, I knew that I just needed to shut up and listen. The voice was already there. You can hear it through the experiences of other hikers, the simplicity of schedule, the lack of material possessions, the joy of using your body, 
the meditation of thinking deeply, the peace of not thinking, the feeling of vulnerability. It's a list as long as the trail. In the Christian creation story, it was Adam and Eve who were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, not God. If you want to hear the voice of the divine, then go back to the garden. Hike the trail. Go outside and listen. In doing so, you may feel farther removed from theology and a whole lot closer to God. With each passing year, I am exponentially more grateful that as a naive college grad with limited outdoor experience, I decided to shrug off societal expectations and take a five-month hike. Because walking the Appalachian Trail didn't just change my life, it revolutionized it. The gift of backpacking is much bigger than learning to navigate the outdoors. The gift is the realization that you can continue to walk freely when you return home. May you all learn to walk freely. Thank you. Jennifer is going to take a few questions in a moment, so be thinking about those. I'm going to make just a couple quick announcements. There's a microphone to my right and my left, um, your left and your right. Um, but the few things I want to say and let Jennifer rest her voice for a minute are, uh, first of all, I want to announce our next event. This is in your program tonight. Uh, it'll be on March 5th. Uh, featuring Dr. Todd Warner, March 5th, among other things, is my wife's birthday, so thank you, Amy, for letting us have an event that night. Um, Todd is an internist, um, and he happens to be someone I know very well. He is incredibly thoughtful. Uh, he knows the Christian tradition really well. He's also a teaching doctor, and he's going to have a wonderful uh, presentation about the art of medicine. I hope you can join us for that. Um, I also want to say a few thank yous tonight. Uh, as always, uh, you have a lot of names and the logos of companies um, in your program from the beginning now for 17 years. Um, these events have been uh, sponsored or underwritten not by the budget of the church, uh, but rather by people uh, like you. Um, and so we are so grateful to everyone uh, who makes uh, it possible for us to bring speakers of Jennifer's quality here and all of the other uh, resources needed to make this series um, happen. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of the names here. <laughs> um, and I apologize, I didn't even, I'm not even sure which of our corporate sponsors are here. I do know that Jim Elvestrom with Thrivent is here. Um, Jim and Thrivent have been a, one of our longest uh, running sponsors. So Jim, thank you as always for your uh, support. And thanks to all the rest of you uh, who make these uh, possible. Uh, again, we have many of our sponsors here this evening. Will you join me in thanking them publicly?
Um, a few other thank yous. Um, Jennifer mentioned her book, Becoming a Dissa, which, by the way, it actually, it was kind of hard to get a copy of this, or copies to sell tonight precisely because the 10-year anniversary is coming up. So Matt from Subtext Books is out there. Uh, if you'd like to pick a copy up and have her inscribe it, uh, please do that. Thank you, Matt, for being with us. As always, it's great to have your support. Jeff Elstad, as always, thank you for your music. Um, Jeff has been at every event, save maybe one or two over 17 years uh, playing music before and afterwards. So Jeff, we are grateful for you. And the last thing I will say, um, one of the questions I get maybe more frequently than any other question about this series is, where do you come up with the ideas? Um, sometimes that's easy to answer, sometimes it's less easy to answer. Uh, tonight though, um, I once again, and I've had to say thank you to her many times now over the years, want to thank Amanda Berger, who's over there, for giving me the suggestion to invite Jennifer. Uh, Amanda also happens to be, she's on staff here at church, she happens to be the editor of our quarterly magazine called Inspire. I don't know how well you can see this. You will, if you can see it at all, you'll notice it's sort of a Christmas theme because it came out, um, this issue came out uh, back in late November, early December, but I mention it because there is in this issue uh, a Q&A interview with Jennifer, um, and there are still copies of this available. So if you'd like to do a little more reading about Jennifer and her work, uh, you can pick a copy of this up at our welcome counter um, on the west side of the church. Okay, I'm gonna be quiet now um, and give you a chance to ask some questions if you have any. So again, the mic is there and there. Um, have at it. <clears throat> I, I'm cold again. I just You're cold say, again? Yeah, yeah, like when I was talking, I was like on the trail and I was good and then I stopped and I was back in Minnesota and I was like, I'm cold. It's chilly here. Hi Jennifer, uh, lively microphone. I don't believe you used the word pilgrim or pilgrimage in your entire presentation. And I'm just wondering how your travels, uh, are you a pilgrim or are you just a traveler on a journey? Uh, how does the pilgrimage, the meaning of a pilgrimage differ from a tourist, for example? Um, I think that's a good question. I think it's partly semantics, though. I think a, a traveler can certainly have a, a deeply religious or spiritual journey. Um, so in that sense, I feel like, you know, I do consider myself a pilgrim. Um, but I think anyone who's willing, again, anyone who's willing to take a long journey of self-discovery and step outside uh, modern pressures and modern culture and to commune with God and or nature and or simplicity and or others, there's a richness to come with any journey like that. So can you, can you take a pilgrimage to Graceland, for example? To so take a pilgrimage to Graceland? To That's worship a good Elvis. question. Oh my gosh, there might be some quota of like so many McDonald's negates a pilgrimage. I don't know. It's a good question. Um, I just, you know, I think it's personal, and I have some done, for example, the Camino de Santiago, which is known as a pilgrimage, and I will say there is something extra about that trail, and that's a fun hip word if you don't know that. It's extra, but here's what's extra about it. You feel the energy of a thousand years of spiritual seekers on that path. It's not a very difficult trail, but still there's this spiritual energy that feels like 
a moving sidewalk is pulling you towards the divine because people have blazed it. People have sought God on that trail for so long. And the symbolism of that trail is really beautiful because it's not just a linear path. There's many different roads and paths that lead to Santiago, the sacred city these pilgrims are seeking. And the symbol is a shell. I forget what the type of shell is called. Can anyone remind me? It's the type with many different lines all ending in the same place. And some are short and some are long. And the idea is that we all take different journeys. But pilgrims, I would say, are the ones that are seeking a path towards the divine. Thank you. You're welcome. Over here, yes. Hi, Jen. My name is Stephanie, and I just have uh, two questions just to get to know you better. Um, one is, I think I heard you say you have hiked in all 50 states. Yes. And so I'd love to hear if you had a favorite one in Minnesota, yeah. which one that is. And then secondly, I was fortunate enough in college to work out in Glacier National Park mm-hmm. and spent... Uh, two months there and did a lot of hiking there. Just wondering, I saw some pictures. I'm wondering if you were able to uh, hike in Glacier Park, and if so, a, one of your favorite hikes that you took in Glacier. Cool. Those are great questions. Um, we've been through Minnesota a couple times, always in the summer. <laughs> um, and our, our favorite hikes here locally, I mean, when we've come through, we've almost always had children. So Minnehaha Falls and around that area has always been really fun. And then we ate the um, burgers at the Blue Door that you put the cheese inside the burger and the cheese curds. Those are awesome. Um, But then we've also hiked different parts of uh, the Superior Trail, just as day hikes. And that's a trail that both my husband and I would really like to hike in completion at some point. Not when there's black flies, not when it's cold. So September, August, around that time. Um, Your question about Glacier is a good one because I've been to a lot of different national parks and glaciers when I have not been to. But part of the story is I, for years, have been working on the Continental Divide Trail. So when you get into this very niche world of long trails and long distance hiking, there's three big daddies that you put them together and we call it the Triple Crown. And it's the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, which goes from Mexico to Canada through California, Oregon, and Washington, and then the Continental Divide Trail, which travels from Mexico to Canada through the Rockies. And even though I got to tell you about this awesome five-month hike, the truth is I haven't had five months in a, a very long time. So most years I backpack two weeks a year, and I was working on this trail, and I've done about 1,500 miles of the Continental Divide Trail, and my goal was to always hike it through Glacier. It goes right through Glacier, and I wanted to see it on foot. But then after becoming a mom, I spent two years out there hiking, my two weeks, and I just remember being in the Wind River Range in Wyoming, and it's one of the most gorgeous places I've ever been in my entire life, and I was crying because I miss my daughter so much. And I realized I was doing that trail partly because I really wanted to, but I had really wanted to do it before becoming a mom. And since then, my priorities had changed. And I didn't want the desire to complete this trail to, A, make me not enjoy it as much as I could, and B, take me away, farther away from my family. So what I decided is that I would work on trails closer 
to home. So that's what I've been doing. So Glacier is actually, I mean, I know everyone was sad that I haven't been there, but in my mind, it's so exciting because it's sort of this sacred, you know, I've been to all these places and, and I haven't been to Glacier and I get to look forward to it and someday I'll go and it's going to be more special because of the wait. But if you have trails to recommend for me, I'll take them. Absolutely. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Hi. I do recommend the Superior Hiking Trail. Yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to know one item that um, you didn't find that you needed anymore, and what's your luxury item if you have one? Oh, this is good. So this is a technical gear question. What did I take out of my pack? A lot. Um, it's strange, people still are very surprised by this, but after about five weeks, I had never once used a pocket knife. Never. So I was like, why am I carrying it if I'm not going to use it? Um, so I got rid of the pocket knife. The other big thing that surprises people is I got rid of my camp stove. So early on, I thought that's just what you do. You cook your food, right, on the trail. I don't like cooking at home. <laughs> Turns out I don't like it on the trail, and I really don't like doing dishes on the trail. And for me, I was hungrier in the morning or throughout the day and just waiting at the end of the day to do a big meal when I was exhausted and all I wanted to do was crawl into my sleeping bag. It just wasn't working out. And so I shipped home my stove and my camp fuel, and I still to this day, if I'm going by myself, I'll just eat small meals of cold food throughout the day, and that's how I like to hike. Um, luxury items are usually a book or a journal or a small Bible or some combination of those things are my luxury items. Yeah. Over here. Yes. Uh, so you mentioned that you were terrified of solitude at yeah. the beginning of your first journey, and I do a fair amount of hiking by myself, but I've never done the overnight mm -hmm. uh, experience by myself. So I was just wondering, especially as a 21-year-old woman, yeah. how did you make that decision to go alone? And uh, yeah, how did you decide that and why? Especially if solitude was such a terrifying thing. thought and experience. Um, it's hard to find people to go with you <laughs> when it's a five-month hike. <laughs> I tried. Uh, I tried to talk a few friends into it, and I thought it was very convincing, but they did not join me. Um, so that was part of it. I did take a short class before I started, and I met a couple there, and we started together. We spent the first two nights camping in the same areas, and then the third night was the first night that I was truly on my own, and it was terrifying. Really, like up until that point, I don't know that I had slept alone in a building by myself. And now here I am in the middle of the woods and I'm frightened and all the things that you think of or the news stories or the horrible things that can happen and you're like, someone is gonna come along and they are going to uh, murder me, they're going to steal from me, they're gonna rape me, all these bad things are gonna happen. But then it didn't and then it started raining and then it started lightning and I was like, they're probably not gonna do it tonight, right? <laughs> It'll probably be another night. And, and so I went to sleep, but that's basically what kept happening in shorter and shorter increments. And the other great thing about hiking and backpacking all day is that you're really tired at the end. So I overcame my fear through exhaustion and inoculation, right? I was tired, I would fall asleep. And then I've now spent over two years of my life outdoors. And I am not going to stand up here and tell you that there are not risks to going in the woods, especially by yourself. 
But the risks, here's what I'm going to tell you, are much lower than we think. We're just not used to them. What we're used to is driving every day in a car 60 or 70 miles per hour. That is far more dangerous statistically than hiking two miles per hour on trail or camping by yourself in the middle of the woods. So now that I'm more comfortable with the experience, it doesn't feel as scary, but I get you. And the solitude was scary to me too. And I feel like we hear this all the time, community, community, community. And it's so important, right? And I heard it a lot from church organizations, but I never heard really the importance of solitude. And what I found was that I was a much better part of community when I could also have time to myself. So that was a gift. I hope that helps. But it was not easy in the beginning. It just took doing it. Great. Yes? Why, don't, why don't we do one last question? And again, Jennifer will be in the narthex and willing to sign books or talk to you following as well. And by the way, don't applause, applaud wildly after she answers this last question, because I'm going to come up and thank her, and then you can applaud wildly, OK? <laughs> so you made it to the end of the trail. Uh-huh. Was it everything you thought it would be? When you got there, was there fanfare and people greeting you, or was it just the end of the trail? Oh, no. And does I, it end in the middle of a city, or is it like on the end of a dirt road? That's what, a what, really what great question. Um, I got to the end, which is a very remote part of Maine, and it is the middle of nowhere, and emotionally, I was done. At the end of my first hike, I never thought at that point, I knew I was different, I knew it was transformational. I didn't know this was a lifestyle yet. <laughs> I was ready for the showers and the air conditioning and the refrigerators. I was ready for all those things. Um, and emotionally just worn out. It had taken a lot out of me. Um, but my dad dropped me off when I started in Georgia. And he said, I'll pick you up from the trail, but I'll only pick you up if you make it to Maine. <laughs> so there he had dropped me off at the first mountain. And when I got there, I was so excited because my dad had driven up and my brother, I have two older brothers, and one of my brothers had come with them. And the family support on this trip was always a little bit wavering. So, so to have them there at the end, and I had missed them so much. Um, and to see them there, that was sort of, I mean, I climbed the last mountain, but that was my mountaintop. Thank you. Yeah. All right, thank you. Uh, thank you all for being here tonight on a cold Minnesota evening. I'm so glad you chose to come out. I hope you thought it was worth your time. I certainly did. And Jennifer, um, as we do with all of our speakers, we have a little gift for you. It's a black piece of granite that simply says, with thanks to Jennifer Farr Davis for bringing faith to life, and we thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank, thank you. you.